Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into our second episode of uh, Passion Week on the podcast. So if you didn't listen to the last po- episode already, you definitely want to go back and, and revisit that. Kind of quick, do an impromptu commercial. We def- definitely want to get our podcast out there. We, you know, we're not doing it <laughs> to build college money for the kids. It's, it's something that we want to bless people with. And it's been your heart for years on this, but we're also learning that the more you guys as listeners are involved, the more you can help us. Right. And so one of the things that you can do even right now, pause this episode or after you're done with this one, whatever app you're listening, whether it's Podbean or Apple or Spotify or whatever, go into the show and like it, uh, you know, give it five star review and even add a review in there. Like say, Hey, you know, we just, we love the podcast. It's a, it's a blessing, whatever. These sorts of things actually helps it get in the algorithm and into the loop better. And more people have an opportunity to see this. We're going to put a lot of notes in the show notes. So if you're listening uh, right now and you haven't looked at the show notes, go ahead and go back and stop and go look at the show notes. Cause I'm going to give an outline of all the verses that we're doing. Do you want to give a summary real quick, Rob, of, of what we uh, went over in that last episode? Yeah, we've been working through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John trying to provide the gospels and the best that we can figure out what happened on that Thursday night in the, in the Friday. We've gone from the disciples coming into the upper room, sitting down, having a meal, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, Judas deciding to leave the meal. Judas has left the building. And Jesus then says, uh, institutes what we call communion in the, at the Last Supper there. And now they're about to leave to leave the house and we'll pick it up from there. Okay. So you now have uh, the situation where Jesus predicts what Peter's going to do when he denies, you know, still in the upper room. Right. And so this, this change is happening there because everything happening before this is like, Jesus is still teaching <laughs> and, and this is, they're having this shared moment of feet washing and whatnot, but now the mood is shifting. Yes. Now, again, the gospels aren't consistent on this. The gospel mm-hmm. of John places this in the, in the upper room and John 14, 31, yeah. but the gospel of Matthew places this in the garden. They've already left and he's in the garden where Jesus says, Hey, guess what? Peter says in, in John 13, 36 and 37, uh, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus says, well, where I go, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. And Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. And again, you got to stop there because what Jesus is saying is, you're going to go to a cross later, Peter, mm-hmm. but you can't follow me now. And Peter's like, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And it's like, exactly. That's exactly the whole point. It just won't happen now. Mm-hmm. Then Luke's gospel, and this will be a, a big issue that we're going to talk about on our, on our next Luke podcast. And Luke 22, 31 to 34, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, the word you there in uh, Luke 22, verse 31 is plural. Mm. It's not just Simon. So he's addressing Simon. Remember this honor and shame culture, uh, this hierarchical culture. Peter is the leader. Simon, Simon, Satan's demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I prayed it for you that your faith may not fail. And that once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you've denied me three times that you know me. Now, we're also going to talk about, to kind of put in a plug for our next uh, Luke podcast that you and I are going to do. We're going to talk about the fact that you have to read this in light of the, the spiritual warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of, of the devil. Hmm. And 
this goes back to the Genesis again also, because the whole storyline of the biblical story is the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman constantly being at war with each other. You, you will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. Hmm. That's exactly what's happening now uh, in the gospel. So that's why Satan is so prominent in these stories, because he, this is really what's, what's happening in John's gospel in 14, 15, 16, you have this uh, farewell discourse, yeah. which is going to be, I mean, there's so much happening in these <laughs> three chapters, lots of Holy Spirit stuff that we don't yes. have necessarily from uh, what the other writers are doing. And this just goes back to like, I don't know, even as I'm hearing you, you're saying your last section on, you know, John puts this here, but Matthew puts it here with Peter's denial, right? Right. If, if that's new for you hearing this this could be like a crisis moment. Like, wait a minute, the Bibles are inconsistent or there's a contradiction. And I've only been, I've always been told there's not a contradiction in the Bible. <laughs> Remember these guys, like what happened was true. What happened happened. They're placing these events in different areas just because there's a purpose for why they're telling their story the way they are. And that's, that's no different than when we went through Matthew and why Matthew constructs his story in the way he did, or why Mark puts his story in the way he did, or Luke, or, uh, you know, John does the same thing. So it would be pretty boring if we had four, if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were literally just the same thing four times. Right. <laughs> you know, these guys are telling their story in a specific reason, specific way to communicate a certain thing. Yeah. And I'd also, that's a good point. I didn't even, not sure why I didn't even realize that I had said that and how could it, it could be a, a point of crisis for some people. Realize that the early church was fine with this. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had no problem with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not agreeing on all the details. Okay, so what's the problem? They, they didn't think the way we thought. They compiled these gospels together. They realized the gospels go together and went on their merry way. If they were like, quote unquote, therefore wrong, they would never have put one of them in. Okay, well, this one can't be in because that one's in. They wouldn't have done that. So it's only our modern standards to say, well, it either happened here or it happened there and one's wrong. It's like neither one are trying to, to do that. They're not trying to place present the facts as though, well, this is the way it happened. Mm -hmm. And John's like, no, this is the way it happened. It's like, they're not doing that. So that really is a product of the enlightenment and yeah. modernity in terms of how we think and how we construct things correct. in more linear scientific kind of ways. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So John's gospel is, as you just mentioned, is going to have this extended speech of Jesus. So for John's gospel, they can't leave the house yet because he's got a lot to say to them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he places what happened with Peter's denials at the beginning of, uh, at the end of chapter 13, he's got three chapters of this extended speech. We just know that by chapter 17 of John's gospel, they suddenly are in the garden and he's giving his, his prayer there. John's not trying to worry about that. He's, he's just inserting this, this particular story. So we're going to save that speech because mm -hmm. we're going to discuss it in some detail on our John podcast on one of our John episodes, but it's extremely significant. And the way I would maybe give a teaser now, I, I would say this. In the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is as important or more important to the story than Jesus. Which is funny, real quick, because as modern evangelicals, yeah. we love the Gospel of John because it yes, definitively right. proves the divinity of Jesus and Trinitarian language. So yes. when you hang out with the Jehovah's Witness, you go to John. Yeah. Uh, this is why we love John and we ignore the the fancy word is the pneumatology of it, the Holy Spirit aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like the Holy Spirit is central to the gospel of John from the beginning. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point from the beginning. All the stories about water and chapters two, mm -hmm, three, and mm -hmm. four are pointing us to the Holy Spirit. I would say the Holy Spirit is as important or more important in the gospel of John than Jesus is. And it's like, it's a gospel about Jesus. Like, yeah, but so the other thing maybe to point out now, since we haven't discussed John's gospel yet in our podcast series, 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written maybe 20 or 30 years before the Gospel of John. John's readers know Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One of the things he's doing in the Gospel of John is kind of answering some questions mm -hmm. that John's got that Mark's Gospel specifically raised. John's kind of answering a few of those. And then John's supplementing it with things that weren't discussed in those Gospels, most notably like who Jesus is and mm -hmm. how this fits into the Old Testament story. Let's move forward then, Vinny. And what we'll do now is, is note that the disciples then take us the, to the Garden of Gethsemane. And of course, Gethsemane means an olive press. And it says in the garden, uh, in the olive press, there was a garden there, which is Eden language, because in Eden, mm -hmm. there was a garden there. Remember, Eden and the garden are not synonymous. Mm -hmm. So there's Eden, and in Eden is a garden. And mm -hmm. then there's Gethsemane, and in Gethsemane, there is a garden, and that's where Jesus goes. So it says in Matthew 20, 26, verse 36, that he asked the disciples to wait at one particular place in the garden, and then he takes Peter, James, and John in a little bit further. And we haven't discussed this, I don't think, yet, but Peter, James, and John, we kind of refer to as the inner circle of three disciples. Mm -hmm. There are certain events, like prayer of Jesus, for example, where only these three disciples are taken in, the raising of Jairus' daughter, yeah. as well as the transfiguration, transfiguration only Peter, yeah. James, and John are privileged to. And again, they definitely had a hierarchical structure with Peter at the head of it. And then Peter, James, and John, and there, there might have been Andrew uh, attached to them also, but at least these three are privileged. And then they go in. Now, again, John's gospel has this long, extensive prayer, this high priestly prayer of John 17, Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. And I pray that they may be one, even as we are one, which I kind of chuckle with because I'm sorry, because that's exactly what has not happened in the church, that yes. the church has become one, even as Jesus says. But nonetheless, that's where John chapter 17 kind of fits in here. But nonetheless, Jesus tells the disciples in, Matthew, in Matthew's account that he's filled with sorrow. And he asked them to, rem to remain and to keep watch. And this, this word keep watch has this implication of be ready. It, it doesn't mean like, hey, you know, keep your eyes open. It's just the spirit of readiness because you need to know what's going on here. So then it says he went, actually went in a little farther himself. So he, he left nine of the disciples kind of at the beginning of the garden. And then he takes Peter, James, and John with him. And then he says, okay, you guys stay here and keep watch. And then he goes a little bit farther. And he prays, I like Matthew's gospel in this particular part, because in Matthew's gospel, he prays, may this cup be taken from me, mm -hmm. yet not what I will, but as you will. And we said at the beginning of our last episode that from the beginning, Jesus knew the cross was the way it was going to be. He, he knew all along, since he began traveling to Jerusalem and Matthew, Mark, and Luke in particular, he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He reminds them over and over and over again. Yet he also knows what this means. And it means, I don't want to do this. Mm -hmm. And it says an angel appears to him in Luke 22 and provides comfort. And of course, that there's a spiritual battle going on without question there. Now, Luke 22, verse 44 says he sweat uh, like drops of blood. Of course, that's probably not in the original manuscripts, mm -hmm. nonetheless. And even if it was, it doesn't mean that he actually sweat drops of blood. It was like drops of blood. I, I was going to say, this is something yeah. where this becomes one of those misnomers yeah, that you exactly. hear. Yeah. Like I go through this when I teach like biblical interpretation, e even if it is being, even if it is part of the text and there's not a textual variant there, which it, there is, yeah. it, he sweat like drops of blood. 
So it's, it's describing the intensity in which he was sweating. And because you, you hear sermons, oh, someone could be so stressed out that they could physically produce this. No, that's not the point. The point is he was just, right. he was sweating. Yeah. No, the pastors or, or teachers get so excited because I can prove that Jesus actually yes. sweat blood because there's a scientific medical explanation. It's like, yes. it doesn't say he sweat blood. No. It was like drops of blood. Yeah. And it's just this tremendous angst and anxiety mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. agony that he's going, that he's undergoing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think as we go through the rest of Thursday night and Friday in the cross, it's super important to remind ourselves of the suffering of Christ. We talk so much about Jesus suffering for us on the cross. Mm-hmm. It's like, folks, he has been suffering for like the last 12 to 15 to 20 hours mm-hmm. or more. And it began on Thursday night in the garden going, hey, Father, take this from me. Yeah. Now he returns. No, 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 like, yeah, like if from an apologetic standpoint, I just want to jump in here. If if you ever engage with uh, Mormon, someone who's LDS, they actually have a theology that is built on this that says, I, I don't know if you, you're aware of this. So, so they would say, because he sweat drops of blood, they literalize that. Therefore, the atonement actually started in the garden. Oh. We would say, no, the atonement didn't happen in the garden, right. <laughs> but his agony started in the garden. There was yeah. a very real thing that's happening there, but this is not the same as the cross. It says he returns to his disciples in Matthew 26, verse 40 and 41, and they and found them sleeping. And then again, he goes and prays. And this time in Matthew 26, verse 42, he says, if it's not possible, may your will be done. And I find that intri- really significant because he has just said, Father, take this cup from me, but mm-hmm. not my will, but your will be done. And then he comes back a second time and says, okay, I guess it's not possible. So I guess your will be done. Mm-hmm. That, that Jesus knew in his heart, whether God spoke to him, whether he answered his prayer and said, nope, not doing that. Okay, great. And of course, Jesus is exemplifying the Lord's prayer, right? Thy will be done on, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Again, with, with that, yeah. do, you, do you think it's important, um, especially in evangelical world, we love the deity of Jesus, and so we might think, oh, well, he knew the will of God because Jesus is right. God. And, and so we almost view like Jesus going through the actions. And, and I think this is one thing where N.T. Wright does a really good job of challenging people. I think we mentioned this earlier in a few you know, number of podcasts back in his um, How God Became King book, okay. where he, he mentions this, how like the evangelicals overly do it, the deity of Jesus. And so we almost have this Gnostic view of God, of Jesus, right. where he kind he of just suffer, floats, yeah. you know, he, he's not a real human. Whereas in mainline liberal theology, they underemphasize the deity of them, but then they overemphasize the humanity of them. And N.T. Wright's point is like, hey, like you need to have a complete view of Jesus. <laughs> and so yeah. just challenge yourself. So this is one of those times, especially for our conservative evangelical friends, which are like I'm sitting in that context. We want to just immediately turn to, well, Jesus was God. So he knew all things. He's an omniscient, not recognizing like, no, this is the hypostatic union. The big word that says how Jesus can have these two natures. He is still fully 100% man. So he is fully sweating like he's bleeding, like it's gushing, like he is freaking out. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the biggest anxiety attack I've ever had, mm-hmm. or like the biggest stress mm-hmm. moments where you're worried about something like this is what he's having. Yeah. Like the, you know, and yes, he's spiritually mature enough where he will say, Hey, your will, not my will. And, and I will follow that, but he's still engaging with those emotions. Right. Yeah, very much so. He knows what this means and he mm-hmm. does not want to do it, mm-hmm. but he's willing to do it. And that's the yes. significance. Yeah. So he goes back and finds the disciples sleeping a second time. It says in Matthew 26, their eyes were heavy and they were exhausted from sorrow. 
and, and Luke's gospel. And again, he goes off and prays a third time. And again, a third time he comes back and they are sleeping. And of course, the three is probably uh, very significant. We don't know what time it is. It's very late. Obviously, the disciples are sleeping. They don't want to sleep. It's not like, oh, God, how can these guys, how can they fall asleep? Because it's midnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know what time it is. It's quite late. Here's what we know. We know that a number of events happened during that night from the gospel records, some trials before the Jewish authorities and things of that nature. They then have another trial in the morning, and we'll talk about that in in a little bit. And so there has to be some time lapse going on for those things. We also know that Judas has left. And it says in John 18 that Judas comes back with Roman authorities. And this debate in more liberal scholarly circles, whether they were Roman soldiers or not, I think they were. I think that Judas has gone to the authorities because here's what we know. We know earlier in the week, they said, okay, let's, we're going to kill the guy, but not during the festival. There's just too many people in town and the people are right now are kind of on Jesus' side. So we're going to wait till after the festival is over with. Now the feast of Passover is a one day feast, but the next day is the feast of unleavened bread. Mm. And this feast of, and that's a seven day feast. So we have eight straight days of festival. And this Passover was actually a special Passover because it happened on the day before the Sabbath. So the next day, Thursday night begins Friday. So the meal happens on Thursday night, as we call time, but that's actually Friday for them. Mm-hmm. Then the next morning, of course, the trials, the next, mo- the next day is the crucifixion. The next night is Friday night, which becomes officially Saturday. That Saturday now is, is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's also the first day of the Sabbath. So it's a special Passover because it butts up against the Sabbath there. Hmm. So it seems as though, and again, we're really speculating now because we don't know this, that Judas has left and said, hey, guys, I think he's willing to surrender himself now. What happened that changed the authorities' minds to say, okay, let's see if we can get this done now? Because you're in the middle of of a festival, of, of a feast, and of course, like, okay, we got to get this done now because the next day is Sabbath. We can't do it then. And then we're in the middle of, Pas- of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All right, let's get it done now. Something happened now. And the suspicion is, and it's only a suspicion, that Judas has gone and said, hey, guys, I think he's going to go willingly if we do it tonight. Hmm. It also seems that Jesus is delaying in the garden. And note, he, three times he goes back and forth. Hey, guys, you stay here. Takes Peter, James, and John a little further. Hey, you guys stay here. He goes off and prays. He comes back. You guys are sleeping? And then he goes off and prays again. Okay, Lord, if it's not your will, then your will be done. If it's not your will that I that I be relieved of this. Okay, great. He goes back a second time. They're still sleeping. He goes back and prays a third time. Like, why is he going back and forth? It seems as though Jesus is intentionally delaying. Mm-hmm. And the question is, how does Judas know where he's at? Mm-hmm. Well, it says in the Gospels that he often went to the garden to pray. And so he's either going to be in Bethany if that's the city that he was staying in, John's gospel seems to indicate that's where he was staying, that he's gone back to Bethany. He's left that, you know, the, the Passover has to be eaten within the vicinity of Jerusalem. So he's eaten the Passover in Jerusalem, and now he's left and gone to Bethany. And if he's not back in Bethany, on the way to Bethany is the garden. Maybe we can find them here. Hmm. And it also says that Judas identifies Jesus with a kiss. And of course, it's like, well, why would they have to identify? They know who he is. Well, I think that suggests that there's Roman soldiers involved because they don't know who he is necessarily mm-hmm. per, per se. And furthermore, it indicates it's also late at night and it's dark and they've got maybe some torches out there. But note again that Jesus calls him friend and Judas betrays him with a kiss. Mm-hmm. 
Jesus had asked in John 18, he says, you know, who is it that you want? And they said, well, we want Jesus of Nazareth. And then it says, Jesus comes up and kisses him. And then Jesus says, I am he. And they fall to the ground. Now, the reason why they fall to the ground there, I think the gospel of John's getting this out and our translations don't always do us justice here, is because what Jesus says is, he says, I am. Mm-hmm. Now, I am in English is not necessarily a complete sentence unless it's like, is anybody hungry? I am. All right, it's a complete sentence. The translations often say, I am he, Mm -hmm. but I am is essentially the definition of God's divine name given to Moses in the book of Exodus. Of course, it actually was given to Abraham earlier on in the book of Genesis describes his name as the Lord. The name, the Lord means I am Mm -hmm. the, the one who is. And I think that's what's indicated in John 18, verse six, that they fall to the ground. Now, John's gospel then says that they cut off the high priest, a servant of the high priest's ear. And what's interesting is John names the man. His name mm-hmm. was Malchus. And it's suggested very likely that John was known by the family of the high priest. So remember, as the, as the night goes on, Jesus is going to go into the high priest's home and have a trial there. And it says John and Peter got into the courtyard. Well, if John's known by the high priest, that's how he gets in. And Peter gets in because he's with John. So, of course, now all the disciples flee. Like sheep are going to be scattered. So you guys are going to be scattered. Oh, Lord, I'm going to be willing to die with you. Well, yeah, not really. As as all the disciples flee. And Jesus is now alone in this hour of of great need. Again, add that now to the suffering he's undergoing. Because now he's been betrayed by his friends. I mean, Mm -hmm. Peter's going to betray him more so later on, but the disciples have already left. They're not hanging around. It's, it's almost a preview for what you see on the cross where he does quote Psalm 22, where he says, my yeah. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's already been forsaken by everyone now, yeah. you know, his earthly people, even going back into Monday, Thursday, like the command is to love one another. Like, this is how people are going to know that you're my disciples when you, when you demonstrate that now here's, he's in his greatest moment of need and he's all alone. Yeah. Yeah. Now, according to the gospel of John, they brought Jesus to a man named Annas, who used to be the high priest. And he's the father-in-law, the current high priest. And you're like, what do you mean? Used to be the high priest? Cause the high priest's office is an office for, uh, for mm-hmm. life. Well, that had gone kind of by the wayside back about 200 years before this, when the Greeks began selling the office of high priest to the highest bidder and no longer was the high priest, a man uh, from the Zadokite family, which goes all the way back to the time of David and earlier. So by now the Romans are in charge and the high priest is a high political office. And so Rome's like, okay, guess what? Here's what we're going to do. Annas retires and his son-in-law Caiaphas becomes the high priest. But the reality is, once a high priest, always a high priest. Mm-hmm. And when you're the father of the high priest, who used to be the high priest yourself, they're going to take Jesus to you first. Mm-hmm. So John's gospel in John 18, 12 through 14, and then 19 through 20, 23, has Jesus being questioned by Annas. But Annas has no authority. And of course, Jesus is, uh, says his response is like, look, I don't know what your problem is, but I did. Every- <laughs> you probably didn't say it that way, but uh, <laughs> I did everything publicly. All right, so in John 18, verse 22, it says, then one of the officers standing nearby Jesus struck him in the face and saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus said, if I've spoken wrongly, testify the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? And the answer is, look, all I said was, I did everything openly in the temple courts. Why are you asking me? Because if you're asking me, you're trying to get me to incriminate myself, which, mm-hmm. which actually is against Roman law also. They, they had the fifth back then. 
or something of that nature uh, back then. He, he has done nothing wrong. All right, then verse 24 in John 18 says, they sent, Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Hmm. Now, sometimes people will make a big deal about these trials because technically they're illegal. So the famous movie, The Passion of the Christ, has all this happening in the temple courts mm -hmm. because that's where the, the court actually met. But the reality is the temple courts is where they actually met, but they can only meet there legally during the daytime. Mm -hmm. So now some people will make a big deal. Of, oh, they're having all these illegal trials. Well, they're not having illegal trials because they don't consider these trials. That's why they have another trial in the morning because everything that, that they did at night isn't legal. But what they're doing is saying, okay, we got to have our, our things in order because we don't have a lot of time tomorrow. Because tomorrow night at six o'clock, it begins the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. And so we got to get this done by six o'clock tomorrow night. And now that meant they had to get Pilate to agree to have him crucified. Because at this point in time, Pilate hasn't agreed to anything. I do think that Pilate has already been spoken to, though, because Pilate is the only one that can authorize the Roman soldiers to come and arrest Jesus. So if Roman soldiers are present at the arrest of Jesus, then Pilate has already been notified. And I think that'll make sense of some of the conversations in the morning. But nonetheless, what's happening during the night is saying, hey, let's get everything in order so that we can make sure this goes quickly in the morning when they have their legal formal trial. So they weren't doing anything behind the back, anything illegal. They knew it wasn't legal. They were just trying to get everything together. So nonetheless, they take Jesus before Caiaphas now for a more formal trial. And it says that Peter followed at a distance and was able to enter the courtyard because John knew the servant girl at the door. This is John 18 verses 15 and 16. So John knows a servant girl. She lets him in and Peter follows in as well. But of course, the problem is, the trials at least, they can't agree on any particular formal charge. Let's go to Mark's gospel, Mark 14 right now. In Mark chapter 14, it says that they're trying to get a testimony against him, but they couldn't get any testimony. Verse 56 says, yet their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to say, to give false testimony against Jesus saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with hands. And in three days, we'll build another made without hands. And that's this really is interesting because, because that's quoted in John 2, but that's actually not quoted in Mark. That, that's correct. But Jesus didn't say, I will destroy the temple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He says, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up. And he mm -hmm. didn't say made without hands. Yes. But that's a reference to Daniel 2. Yes. Yep. Nonetheless, of course, we see the fulfillment that John and Mark and the gospel writers are seeing within the story. So, of course, it's false testimony. The problem is this, verse 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Now, the problem is this, they're trying to have Jesus crucified or have Jesus tried with a capital charge. And in that world, if someone's convicted on a capital charge, you need two witnesses. Mm -hmm. And if it's a stoning instance, for example, the two witnesses are the ones who are required to throw the first stones. Mm -hmm. Now, if the two witnesses, if their testimony is found out to be untrue, they are stoned. Mm -hmm. So they're like, well, if we can't get our testimonies consistent, no one's going to say, all right, I'll go up. I'll do it. I'll do it. Because their life is on the line. So if you mm -hmm. accuse somebody of a capital crime, a capital charge, and you give false witness, then you're, the, the death sentence goes to you. So very significant. They couldn't get any charge or anyone to agree. So what happens? It says... In verse uh, 60, the high priest stood up and said, do you make no answer? What is it that these men are, are testifying against you? Now, Mark 14, verse 61, he kept silent, made no answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him saying, 
are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Was in Daniel seven. Yeah, exactly. Now, Matthew's gospel says in verse 63 of Matthew 26, it says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Now, what's happening is this, they can't find false, they can't find true witnesses against Jesus. And they need them, of course, to have him guilty of a capital crime. They have to have a charge that they can take to Rome, to, to Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, here's what's going on. Now, mind you, blaspheming against the temple, saying, I'm going to destroy it and build another one. That's blasphemous to them and worthy of death. But it's not a charge that's going to, that Pilate's going to care about. I could care less what he does to this temple. It's your building. I don't, I don't really care. Now, I care if there's an uprising in the city and I'm, my men have to get involved and yeah. I want to keep peace. And that's what Romans put me in charge to do is to keep peace. But nonetheless, that, that's not an issue that he cares about. Now, what the high priest has done is he's, a, he's asserted his authority to say, I charge you under oath. And when the high priest charges you under oath, you are obligated to respond. Hmm. Now, the reality is, the question is, well, are you the Christ? And that is a charge that Rome will have interest in. Mm -hmm. What's your answer? Because that's political at this point. Because that's political. We, we hear this and we're like, but that's a theological. Why yeah, this is care? a religious debate with the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Sanhedrin and Jesus. No, it's political now. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Very, very perceptive. Mm -hmm. So Jesus' answer is, well, you said it and Mark, in Matthew 26, verse 64. And again, the translations can be, it's like, I think maybe the best way to translate this from the Greek would be, you're the one who is saying that I am. Mm. That, those are your words. Mm -hmm. But then he adds, as we read in, in Matthew's in uh, Mark's gospel, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's a reference to Daniel 7, verse 13. Which now, is also very political. <laughs> it's also very, yes, it's very political because the, the, the four beasts are four kings. Mm -hmm. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is Israel. Mm -hmm. It's the people of God. And, but the people of God uh, being representative by this one representative re representation of them as the Son of Man. But when you read Daniel 7 carefully, the Son of Man is also associated with the divine God mm -hmm. himself, the one, mm -hmm. the, the one who sits on the throne. And so Jesus' quote of Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is, yeah, and guess what? I am the Son of God, but I'm also the Son of Man who's coming on the clouds of heaven. And it's God who comes on the clouds of heaven. And mm -hmm. in the Bible, God's the one who rides the cloud. Mm -hmm. He's the cloud rider, the cloud by, by day and the fire by night. God comes on a cloud. And so, of course, the high priest tears his clothes and says, You've, you, you, he's spoken blasphemy. Matthew's gospel says they began to strike him in the face, to spit on him and say, prophesy, prophesy to us after they blindfolded him and said, if you're the Christ, who hit you? So again, the mocking, the scourging, the beating, the very ones for whom he is dying are the ones who are doing this to him. So when you talk about the suffering of Christ and the passion of Christ, you have to recognize all the things that have been transpiring throughout the entirety of the last 12 to 14 hours before he even gets on the cross. Mm. Yeah. What, what I just find is interesting as well is in Mark's. Yeah. I still have Mark 14 up there. That's, you know, they, they began to spit on him. They cover his face to strike him and they say, prophesy, you know, who, who did it? And the immediate passage you have after that is, is recalling, you know, Peter denying Jesus, Yes. you know, he denied it. Oh, that's actually the prophecy that Jesus did give to say that this is the thing that Jesus, that 
that Peter would do was deny him. And so actually you do have a fulfilled prophecy in terms of Jesus knowing what's going to happen. But anyway. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. So if you remember when we discussed Mark's gospel, for those of you listening, we discussed the fact that Mark sandwiches stories. Mm -hmm. He'll tell a story, interrupt it with another story, and then go back to the other story. Mark sandwiches Peter's denials mm -hmm. and Jesus's confession. Yeah. So Jesus tells the truth and gets himself crucified. And in the middle, Peter denies himself. Now, again, all that was illegal. It wasn't illegal in the sense that they were doing something wrong. It was in the sense that it wasn't a legal court case because it wasn't official. It wasn't official. Point. They yeah. have to have a formal trial in the morning. They don't have so, a quorum. <laughs> yeah. So I would say that the trials that happened at night probably were at Caiaphas's home. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you go to Jerusalem and most tours do not take you here, there's a place called the Burnt House in the western side of the, of the old city. So the old city is divided into quarters. There's a Jewish quarter. So in the Jewish quarter, there's a place called the Burnt House. And if you go into the Burnt House, you go underneath the city and you're not far from the temple, from where the temple would have stood. You're, you're right near it. And they found these large houses, mansion-like houses, and they found stone water pots and stone earthenware all over the place. The significance of that is stone is what the priests use. Yep, it's religious. That's it's John religious chapter two. It's because yeah. stone does not mm -hmm. convey impurities. Mm -hmm. And so, and they actually found on, and you can see it if you go to the city of Jerusalem today, where actually it was, that there was a, a pathway for the priests to go from this area of Jerusalem, from their homes to the temple without touching anyone else, because they, they had their own entrance to the temple building. So it's very likely I think actually it is the case that these homes that they've discovered under the burnt house in the old city, in the Western quarter of, of the old city of Jerusalem are indeed the house of Caiaphas and the high mm. priests that they are religious homes. They're large enough to fit aristocracy. I think you're standing, you can literally stand in the home where Jesus actually was there. The courtyard is inside the home, but it's an open air courtyard. So when you enter the home, you enter into a courtyard. And that courtyard now is open air. Mm -hmm. And then around that courtyard are the various rooms. So I've sat in that room. It's, it's very, very powerful experience. You're like, mm. okay, I'm Peter and Jesus is in one of those rooms. Mm. Because what happens in the gospels, it says, I think the gospel Luke says it, that after Peter denied him the third time, it says, then Jesus stared at him. Mm. So Jesus is in one of these rooms over here. And you can see the doorways are still there. And Peter's standing in this courtyard. And you're like, oh, wow, what a moment mm -hmm. where Peter has denied knowing Jesus and Jesus stares at him like, wow. All right, but nonetheless, let's go back to the morning. So sometime early in the morning, they have a trial in the morning. And the question arises again, are you the Christ? And this is Luke 22, verse 67. Jesus says, if I tell you, you won't believe me. They ask him again, are you the son of God? And he says, okay, you're right in saying that I am. And now they've reached a decision. They brought him to Pilate because again, they couldn't get anyone to agree on the charges against the temple, which is really serious. And when we get to the book of Acts, we'll be reminded about the fact that Jesus was speaking something against the temple mm -hmm. because that's a serious issue for the Jewish people, but it doesn't mean much to Pilate. What means much to Pilate is the fact that he's claiming to be the king. And that's what the word Christ ultimately means, the Messiah or the king. So now he appears before Pilate sometime early in the morning. And I put down, you know, 7 a.m. We don't know. But nonetheless, he's brought into the palace. And again, there's two possible places here. Pilate has a palace on the western side of the old city where he spent the night, where he would stay whenever there was a 
a festival. Now, Pilate lived in Caesarea on the coast. But whenever there's a lot of Jews in town for festivals and for feasts, and there was, of course, the Passover and unleavened bread, Pilate would stay in the city of Jerusalem because, again, his job, the role of a procurator is to collect taxes and to keep peace. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to have an uprising, it's going to be when there's a lot of people in town. So Pilate and extra security are in town. Now, it says that the Jews could not enter the palace in the Gospel of John uh, because they would be defiled and unable to eat. It says the Passover meal. And there's a big question here, and we can discuss this when we do the Gospel of John, is does John's Gospel have Jesus eating the Passover meal the night before and uh, the the actual Passover? You know, some say John's Gospel has Jesus crucified on Thursday, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have him crucified on Friday. And and the answer is no. Um, The reason why that is this, because any if you enter a Gentile's home, you're defiled for the day. Mm but the day ends at sundown. So if the Passover meal at night is what they were talking about, meaning this happens on a Thursday in John's gospel, they wouldn't have been worried about entering Pilate's palace on a Thursday to be defiled and not able to eat the Passover meal that that evening. It can only refer to a noontime meal, a daytime meal. And the daytime meal called the Shagiga was met, was ate on the day during the daytime on the Passover itself. I think the evidence actually is that John's gospel also has Jesus being crucified on Friday. But nonetheless, one of the questions is, is Jesus having this trial? Are they having this trial at Pilate's home and his palace or at the Roman fortress, which was attached to the temple complex, like right next to the Antonia fortress, as it's called, which is right next to or attached to the temple building itself. I think, I don't think we know for certain, but I think this is happening at Pilate's home. So it's happening at Pilate's home and Pilate says, okay, hey guys, what's the charge? Now, John's gospel goes to extensive dialogue on this. And if you read John, the end of John 18 and John 19, you're going to get all this dialogue. But Pilate wants to know the charges against him. And the Jews appear to be alarmed. Like, what do you mean? What's the charge? It says in John 18, verse 30, it says, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Now, in one sense, this is no way to speak to a Roman Mm -hmm. official in charge. But it suggests, and again, we're really filling in the gaps here. We don't, we aren't certain. So just it's called an argument from that. silence. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm not arguing. Well, this is exactly I'm filling that, in yeah. the gaps of the, yeah. of the voices that we do have. Okay. Saying, I think this is the way to make sense of what was just said. Mm-hmm. But we can't be certain that that's that we're actually surmising correctly. Mm-hmm. So what they said was disrespectful. Like if we didn't have a charge, we wouldn't have brought him here. I think that suggests we told you last night when we got the guards. I think what happened is Judas left, went to the high, went to the priest's home and said, Hey, hey guys, I think he's willing to do this. Remember, Jesus goes back and forth, back and forth, mm-hmm, back and mm-hmm. forth three times. He's he's delaying for Judas to come. Something's taking a while. I think what's taking a while is he went to the Jewish authorities, they went to the Roman authorities, which is Pilate, and said, Hey, can we get this done? Pilate agreed to that. All that took time. Okay, go ahead and get this battalion of Roman soldiers. And then they come now to the garden and arrest Jesus. So in the morning, when they meet with Pilate, they're like, uh, what do you mean? What's the charge? Pilate says, you know, take them away yourselves. And they respond, but we can't execute anyone. Hmm. So then Pilate begins to interrogate Jesus himself. In John 18, it says, are you the king of the Jews? In John 18, verse 33. And of course, Jesus again is silent. Uh, it says in verse 33, Pilate entered into the praetorium and he summoned Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, well, look, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Which is also a little bit of 
almost disrespectful mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because, of course, Pilate doesn't know anything other than what the Jewish authorities have said. And Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Which really tells you, by the way, how much the Roman world was anti-Semitic yeah. and Pilate was actually very anti-Semitic. And if we had time to do a podcast on like the New Testament backgrounds or the historical backgrounds, Pilate was not in a good place right now. And, and actually, this is relevant to the story here. Pilate has, has gotten himself in trouble with the Jewish authorities on several occasions, mm-hmm. and they've gone to Rome and told on him. And he can't afford to get himself in much trouble again. So, I mean, Pilate is the Roman authority. If he says, look, I don't think he's worthy of death, then it's done. But it's not done because Pilate is in a precarious position with the Jewish authorities. And if they go to Rome again, he's going to be in a lot of trouble. So he says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest deliver you, you to me. What have you done? And Jesus said, okay, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to you, uh, over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. And again, it's important to recognize a couple things here. One is he's not talking about a spiritual kingdom up in heaven. He's talking about the place of his kingdom is not this worldly, but it's heavenly kingdom where God rules from. And the heavenly kingdom is going to overwhelm the kingdoms of the world. So it's very much a, a this worldly kingdom, but only in the sense that it's ruled by God from heaven itself, who will eventually overtake the kingdoms of this world. Uh, number one. Number two, his reference to the fact that my kingdom is not of this world. I don't do things the way the world does things. The world does power by warfare. The world does power by stepping on the little guy. I do power by dying for the sake of the other. And the reason why I point this out here is because people make a big deal of the fact that Peter had a sword and hacked off the high priest's ear. And, and we'll talk Jesus about this do? in our, <laughs> I, I, I talked, uh, hacked off the servant of the high priest's ear. Yeah. Yeah. But Jesus, like he also immediately rebukes him for doing that. And he heals the guy. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And we're going to talk about this on our fourth podcast that you and I are going to do on the gospel of Luke as well, because, uh, well, Jesus told them, if you don't have a sword, you know, mm-hmm. go uh, sell your stuff and buy one. Uh, there's no way he meant that literally. If he meant that literally, then what is, why would he come out and sell Pilate? Members of my kingdom, they don't wage war like you guys do. They don't come out fighting. And when Peter does use the, the sword, he, he heals the guy and says, guys, this is not mm-hmm. the way we do things around here. So Pilate says, okay, so you are a king. And he's like, well, yeah, I am. And for this reason, this is verse 37 uh, of John 18. Uh, for this reason, I've been born. And for this reason, I've come to testify to the truth. And everyone who's of the truth hears my voice. And then Pilate said, what is the truth? Mm. Isn't that the most incredible question in all Mm -hmm. of human history? Mm -hmm. Because the answer is standing right in front of you. I'm the truth. And Pilate's like, what is the truth? And it's like, well, uh, hello, me. So it says, then Pilate went out and said, I find no guilt in him. And of course, you're like, well, this is not going to work, Pilate. I don't care if you find guilt in them or not. We have to, uh, to have this guy crucified. Now, Pilate then says in John's gospel, and of course, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also have this happening in the gospel, happening in their gospels also. You know, hey, we have a policy here to release a criminal. So he says, hey, here's the deal. We have this idea, this policy that I can release a criminal. And here's the deal. What do you want me to do? And they say, Jesus or Barabbas. Now, very briefly here, I mentioned this. There's no way the man's name was Barabbas. <laughs> yes. Because Bar is, of course, the Aramaic mm-hmm. word for um, son of, and Abba is the Aramaic word for father. Mm-hmm. Who names their son a son of a father? Mm-hmm. 
Matthew's gospel has a note, well, it's a textual variant in Matthew 27, verse 16, that says his name was Jesus Barabbas. And the textual variant means there's some Greek manuscripts that contain this. That, that contain this. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a very common testament in the early, early church. In other words, the gospel writers nickname him Barabbas because of the contrast. There's a man named Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, a son of a father, or Jesus, the son of the father. In other words, who do you want me to release? Jesus, a son of a father, or Jesus, the son of the father. Mm-hmm. And the gospel writers seem to be picking up on this. What happens is it says that, that Barabbas had, was an insurrectionist and guilty of murder. And this is a serious issue. What it means is that he has probably killed a Roman official or Roman, a, a Roman individual as a way of starting an insurrection against Rome. And whenever an insurrection against Rome started, Rome would punish everyone. So if this guy gets released and goes out and kills another Roman official, we're all going to get punished again. Pilate seems to be certain you're going to totally let me let Jesus, the son of God, go and have me have Barabbas, this Jesus Barabbas uh, killed. And they I say, think that's no. significant, though, because we oftentimes get the idea, especially living in the West, where like this is merely the judge letting the criminal off the hook who did something bad. And, and it's like, no, it's it's not merely that this guy gets to go free and doesn't get what's due to him. It's there's a societal implication yeah. for what he did. Yes. And, and this is yeah. what they're choosing. No, we would rather allow this and risk getting in trouble again and getting, uh, you know, our th- the thumbs of Rome smashed on us. We would rather have that than let Jesus go. Right. Right. And of course, now all this is because the authorities are the ones who are uh, influencing the crowd, most likely there to do these things. Now, Pilate then responds by saying, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they say, crucify, crucify. Pilate says, like, why? What crime has he committed? And then Pilate goes into the palace. And this is another place where the movie, The Passion, I think made a mistake because it says that Pilate goes into the palace and has Jesus flogged. This is John 19. Now he has Jesus flogged, given a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and they hail him as King of the Jews. They struck him on the face, spit on him, hit him with their staff and paid homage to him. This is all prior to the crucifixion. In other words, he has not been sent away to be crucified yet. So he's flogged twice. In other words, this flogging is not the flogging that precedes the crucifixion. Hmm. This is a separate flogging. And the idea is this. Pilate brings Jesus out of the palace now. Remember, the Jewish authorities cannot go into the palace because you're going into a Gentile's home and you'll be defiled. And he says, here is the man, John 19, verse 5. Eke homo. Now, of course, you got to remember the gospel of John began with in the beginning. Mm-hmm reminding us of God and creation and, the, and the, the creation of Adam and Eve. Here is the man. Yes, the true human is here. And they say, crucify, crucify. Still, Pilate goes inside, asks Jesus some more questions according to John's gospel. He refuses to answer. And Pilate says in verse 10 in John 19, he says, don't you realize that I have the power to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus says, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And it's just the, reminds- the, the wrong thing to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like, what is the truth? Was the wrong thing to say? Yeah, exactly. A long time ago too, yeah. Right. It reminds again that of God's sovereignty even mm-hmm. over wicked rulers. Mm-hmm. And this is just important to keep in mind when we get to the, to the book of Romans now, right? So Paul goes out to the Jews again. He got, tries to get Jesus freed. The Jews refuse to compromise. Pilate says he washes his hands according to Matthew's gospel. Says I'm innocent of this man's blood. Which, by the way, no, you're not. You can claim to be innocent all you want, but you are the authority in charge. 
And when you hand them over to, the, to, to be crucified, to your own men to do the crucifying, you are the one who is guilty. Uh, so Pilate says, okay, I, I'll have this done. Fine, whatever it is. I'm, I'm out of this, whatever. They bring Jesus to the stone pavement. Pilate says, here is your king. In John 19, verse 14. And they say, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate says in verse 15. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Mm. Now, again, this is significant mm -hmm. because if Pilate does not have him crucified now, the Jews have said, we're good Romans, not citizens, but members of, of the Roman Empire. We only have one king, and it's not that guy. Mm -hmm. And if Pilate does not have a man crucified who has been claiming to be a king, they're going to go tell Rome on him because this is treason. What do you mean you didn't have this guy crucified? What's going on here? So, of course, Pilate hands him over to be crucified. And now he's handed over to be flogged. And this, this is the flogging now that precedes the crucifixion. So if you watch the movie The Passion, they only have him flogged one time and they begin counting the very first time. Now, there's two problems with that. Number one is he's flogged twice. The first time at the beginning of John 19, and look how bloody he is, behold the man. And now this time here. The second reason why that's, there's a problem with the counting is because the Romans are doing the flogging, mm -hmm. and the Jews count, the Romans don't. In the Jewish law, you cannot be flogged more than 40 times. And in order to make sure that they didn't break the law, they only flogged you 39 times in case they miscounted it somewhere along the line. Is that, like, is that number 18 or are we on 19 mm -hmm, now? Mm -hmm. But the reality is the Romans don't care. The man who's doing the flogging is an executioner. Mm -hmm. And if he kills you during the flogging, he did his job. Now, the goal is to get you on the cross because it's shameful. It's, it's, it's despicable. Everybody can see what happens to you. Uh, it's, a, it's a warning to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Don't do whatever this man did. So they want to get you on a cross. But if they don't get you on a cross because they killed you beforehand, it's just one less cross they need that day. It doesn't matter to them. No one's in trouble. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they, counted it, that they counted and only whipped Jesus 39 times is probably not correct. The whip that they use, of course, is uh, there's, there's these um, balls of lead that, that just smack against your flesh mm -hmm. but they also have bone uh, woven into the le leather uh, strips and it's going to rip your flesh out as well as they tear it back it's a it's immensely tragic and significant amount of blood loss and a significant amount of pain that's why when jesus is on the cross he says i am thirsty mm -hmm. it's because what happens is when you lose that much blood all your bodily fluids go to replacing the blood and you dry up in the, in the mouth immediately. Now what happens, of course, is that it, they begin the, the journey to Golgotha, or the place of the skull. As he begins to journey to the place of the skull, which is outside the city walls now. So again, he was probably in Pilate's palace where he had the, the charges uh, brought against him. They brought him to the Antonio Fortress to have him beaten, which is on the other side of the old city now, not that far away, but nonetheless, the other side of the old city. And now they begin to march back towards Pilate's residence because that's where the crucifixion site was. I do personally believe that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is likely the correct place. It's the best location that we have. The garden tomb, if you go to modern-day Jerusalem, is not correct because it's outside the city wall, but the city wall that it's outside of didn't exist at the time of Jesus. It was built later. So the tomb of the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, out, right outside the city wall on a main highway, fits well. Unable to, to carry his cross, they have a man named Simon of Cyrene who carries the crossbar. 
Uh, women are following, they're hurling insults at him and they bring him to the place of the skull or the place uh, called Golgotha, which is Aramaic for the place of the skull and Latin, of course, it's Calvary. And there he's crucified. Again, they put a sign above his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, which in Latin, I-N-R-I, Iesu, uh, Nazareth, uh, Rex, R for Rex, a king uh, of the Jews, Eudias, uh, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And there's two criminals, one on each side. And the two criminals are also lestai or robbers or murderers, insurrectionists. And of course, we discussed this, the two brothers, James and John say, hey, Jesus, can we sit on your right and on your left? It's like, uh, you don't want to be sitting on my right and on my left when I'm being coronated as king, because that's reserved for me. These two people crucified with him would best be defined as terrorists. That's what mm -hmm. they are. But one of them, of course, confesses Jesus. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Uh, Even right no. there, because the idea is it's a thief. So we have the idea like, oh, it's just this guy who was this petty thief who's now yeah. has a capital crime. No, it's, it's bigger than that. Yeah, that's right. Man guilty of insurrection, mm -hmm. very likely. The cross itself was intended to produce agony. It was not intended to produce death. These are long deaths. These are long. These were intentionally long deaths. Mm -hmm. Roman literature tells us that people could be hanged for three to four days. Mm -hmm. There's nothing about hanging on a cross that's going to kill you because if you're nailed to the cross, the blood's going to co coagulate around the wounds. The only way you're going to die is by exhaustion. Mm -hmm. You get so exhausted, you can literally cannot breathe out. You cannot mm -hmm. push the air out and you die by asphyxiation. The Roman world had a law that Roman citizens could not be crucified. It was against the law to crucify a Roman citizen, though they still found ways to break that law if need be. But nonetheless, if you're a Roman citizen, in fact, one Roman historian says, you shouldn't even consider the idea that you should ever die by crucifixion. Mm. And it's likely that the Latin word excruciating mm -hmm. comes out of the death by the cross because they point a new term to describe how painful it was. X for out of, cruciating, out of the cross. Yeah. Although um, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion no like they that did was not the assyrians right like 600 years before that yeah as, as far as i know it goes back at least uh, several hundred years before them I, mm -hmm. I know the greeks practiced it and i think you're probably right with the assyrians also as much as five to six hundred years earlier that's just to, just to show they like, perfected the, it though here's how brutal it was from what i've studied on it the way the assyrians would do it they would leave these um stakes in the ground mm. And they would take a body. I'm showing you. So imagine like a pencil sticking straight yeah, up with the sharp you, edge yeah. up top. And they would, they perfected where the organs were at oh. and they would drop, they would have the person impaled, but to wow. not like actually hit the vital organs. Yeah. And they would just sit there and they could sit there in this road for days uh, yeah. and, and just until they die. And so this yeah. is where the road, you know, from that tradition, this is what this thing is. And it serves as this warning and just this ultimate form of punishment and, it's just awful. It's it's yeah. it's just the most like disgusting, awful thing you could think of. Yeah, it's unbelievable. All right, let's finish this up here quickly. And again, reminder that we mentioned this on the last episode that if you're listening, I'm going to put in the show notes. I'm going to put uh, an outline of some of the, of all these verses for your sake, so you can have reference and follow along there as well. But Jesus is on the cross. They offer him a drink, which he refuses. There's a couple of caveats that that happen with crucifixions in the Jewish world. Number one is. The book of Deuteronomy says, in Deuteronomy 21, it says, if anyone's hung on a tree, he's cursed. Mm -hmm. If he's hung on a tree overnight, the land is cursed, which means we're all under, under that curse. Mm -hmm. So when the Romans brought crucifixion into the land of the Jewish world, Palestine, whatever you want to call it at this particular time, Judea and Samaria, the Jews had to decide, 
is the curse of Deuteronomy 21 applicable with death on a cross? Because is it a tree or not? And they decided, yes, it is. So when the Romans bring this in, they're like, hey, here's the problem. You can crucify this guy, but you have to get him down before sundown. Because at sundown, we're all under God's curse, and we're not going to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. And again, Rome was interested in maintaining order in society. So hence this idea, hey, I'm going to release a prisoner for you at the festival. We're going to give and take a little bit here and there. You're going to maintain peace, and I'm going to maintain some semblance of order. I'll crack down on you when I need to, but I'll also show some mercy every once in a while, just so that you'll like stay in peace. What the Jews did is they went to Rome and said, look, here's the deal. Number one, you can't crucify them naked. Not going to happen. So very likely Jesus has, of course, a, lo a loincloth on. They cast lots for his garments. That would be his outer robe, but he still has a loincloth on. Secondly, there were some women in Jerusalem. We know this from Josephus, who's a Jewish historian at the, at, shortly after the time of Jesus. And he makes reference to the fact that some women in Jerusalem felt so much compassion for people who were dying on the cross that they gave a sedative. Mm. These women would give a sedative to numb the pain. And Jesus refuses it. But then later on, he does receive a drink and he says, I am thirsty. There's one last thing here, and that's this. And of course, a lot of Protestants, Protestants have never heard of this. It's called the seven last words of Christ. You can take seven sayings of Jesus that appear to be like his last sayings, the last words of Jesus. So Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them for they, they do not know what they are doing. Luke 23, verse 43, today you'll be with me in paradise. John 19, verse 27, woman, behold your son and behold your mother. Mark 15, verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John 19, verse 28, I am thirsty. John 19, verse 30, I am, it is finished. And Luke 23, verse 46, father into your hands, I commit my spirit. One of the things that's significant of what we call the seven last words of Christ is that even on the cross, he is showing concern for the sake of the other. Look, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Now, there's one more thing about the crucifixion that I was going to mention also, and that's this. Because the Romans had this law, the Jews had this conviction that if they die by crucifixion, they're under a curse and the whole land is cursed if it's overnight. The Romans did not allow crucified victims in Judea and Samaria to remain on the cross overnight, and they would come by and break their legs because that would hasten death. Because once your legs are broken, you can't push up using your feet to push up. To, and you need to, to push up in out. order to breathe. Yeah, yeah. in order to breathe. Mm -hmm. You can't get the breath out. When they get to Jesus, they go to break his legs and they're like, this guy's already dead. And of course, I think it's you know, maybe theologically interesting, the fact that Jesus controls the hour of his death or mm -hmm. the moment of his death. It says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then he dies. Jesus remained in control the whole time is possibly what the authors might want us to take on that. What's significant, and we're going to discuss this in our Gospel of John study, so I won't give the answer away now, but it's they pierce his side to say, hey, they poke mm -hmm. him to see if he's dead. Mm -hmm. Now, a right-handed soldier is going to poke him most likely on, his on, on Jesus' right-hand side as they're looking at him and up into the heart. And when they poke him, blood and water come pouring out. And in order to know the significance of blood and water pouring out, you have to pay attention to our John podcast that'll come up in about four or five weeks mm -hmm. and we'll discuss that, but it's extremely significant. I will also discuss it in our Genesis study that we're doing. If you're listening to this live in 2022, we're going to start a Genesis study 
on Wednesday nights. And if you send me an email, I'll go ahead and send you a link to that class. And uh, we're going to post those recordings on, on the podcast also. We're going to backdate them to sometime in mid to late April. So you can look at those then. That, I mean, that's it. We have, <laughs> this is, this culminates in the Passion Week, Good Friday, the worst Saturday ever, followed yeah. by the best Sunday ever. Yeah. 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 And of course, we'll talk about this in the Gospel of John because it's Saturday is the seventh day and Jesus is doing what? He's resting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then John 20 verse uh, one says, uh, 21 verse one, on the first day of the week. Mm -hmm. And then it repeats it again, I think in verse 19, on the first day of the week. Mm -hmm. Ah, it's the first day of the new creation. Mm -hmm. As we've been talking about please when you're listening to the podcast go in there like it and leave a review and this isn't for us we don't need the the kudos we do this as a blessing but by doing that that's just going to get it into the algorithm more and it's going to get it out to more people so that's just going to help us out uh, together as a team as we do this it's been good though man like just even prepping for this i feel like i'm fortunate that we have i'm in a church that we actually will do a monday monday thursday and good friday service and it's very meaningful uh, but this is a good way to help prep for that because, you know, yeah. the pastor can't preach through all this type of stuff. Right. So just as a way to, you know, sit and reflect as yeah. we prepare for the, the specific of this, this is not merely an Easter service, which is, I know we just kind of make it like just a, a celebration, just this one day that we, you know, it's just a holiday, but it's more yeah. than that. This is the day that is the prototype for every Sunday. Yeah, that's right. And the cross is also the prototype for Christian living. Mm -hmm. Go and do thou likewise. Yeah, which is, we've used the phrase by Mike Gorman, you know, a cruciform life, a cross-shaped life. Yeah. Yeah, so great. Hey, hopefully this is blessing everyone. Give us input, give us feedback if you ever want to hear anything or have questions about what's coming up. We'll continue into the Luke series and move through as we just absolutely plow through the new Testament. We were moving so quickly. <laughs> it's actually pretty good, but yeah, uh, yeah hopefully, hopefully these are a blessing you and check the show notes for resources and come back next week. Thanks guys. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time. I hope that worked out well. I think it's a really good. Uh, it's going to be a good one. It, what's really cool the way we're doing, we started doing 